So five races now in the books in the Formula One calendar. Been a shakeup at the top. Max Verstappen now leading the world championship. And also Red Bull Racing leads in the constructors standings. And all it took was an exceptional day for both at Monaco. And also coupled that with a terrible day for Mercedes. And that upends the standings as we head to the streets of Baku for round six on June 6th. This is our news and notes podcast here on the Overtake F1 podcast as we go over some of the news making rounds in Formula One. So in this episode, we'll discuss what exactly happened to Charles. Leclerc on his way to the grid for the race Sunday at Monaco, and also the latest on Total Wolf's protest of Red Bull's bendy wings and what he plans to do about it. Lewis Hamilton talking before the race on Sunday that Formula One is becoming a billionaire boys club. He's right. Is there any way to change this? Well, I'll discuss that. And we'll have a preview of Sunday's Indianapolis 500 and why Roman Grosjean decided not to race at one of the premier events in all of motorsports. Once again, a reminder, subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review. If you like what we're doing, we really, really appreciate your time and help making this grow. All right, so let's get started in our news and notes. So what happened to Charles Leclerc's Ferrari on Saturday, which led him to not run on Sunday at Monaco? He crashed in Q3, thus securing his position on pole, and right away, conspiracy theories started running around the internet, implying that he did this on purpose to keep that critical grid position for the race. However, those died down immediately when Ferrari announced that he would not run the race. That added to the woes of Leclerc in his hometown event. Ferrari boss Mattia Bonato suggesting that the team didn't gamble on the gearbox and that his DNS was possibly a result of something unrelated to the crash. Now, listen, I said at the time in our Monaco Grand Prix review that I thought this could have been spin from Ferrari to deflect criticism on how they handled that particular situation. If the problem is unrelated to the crash, then you can't Monday morning quarterback them on the decision to not replace the gearbox and take the grid penalty or go with the gearbox as is to see if it'll be fine for the race from pole, which is your best chance of winning the Grand Prix. And then an investigation revealed that, yes, it was the accident to blame for the car's issues on Sunday that forced the car to head back to the garage after failing to get to the grid. That accident caused a crack in the drive shaft hub. Now, look, I believed and most people believed that the reason Charles Leclerc did not start the race on Sunday had everything to do with the crash on Saturday. I doubt that Ferrari had a car that had a separate problem other than an accident that would have prevented him from driving in the race. Ferrari had five hours to look at the car on Sunday, but they did not check the hub, thinking that there was no damage to it because the impact was located on the opposite side of the car. On his lap to the grid, his drive shaft was damaged due to the failure of the hub, so that was it for the race. So given this detail, I think Bonato's assessment on Sunday was what he felt was right at the time. It wasn't until they got back to Maranello that they discovered how the damage of the hub and how it was related to the crash. On Sunday, he had every reason to think that the hub was not damaged due to the crash, given its location on the car, but then it was later determined to be incorrect, and it was due to the crash. And thus, all good conspiracy theories die in the streets of Monte Carlo. I did feel bad for Leclerc. It was his best chance of winning a race. He certainly would have loved to have done it in front of the hometown crowd, a place he grew up in, a place he watched that race as a kid. He's had no luck there since his Formula One career. And it definitely took some sizzle out of a race that was pretty boring. Granted, the result of the race really leads us to future races down the calendar in terms of an excitement, in terms of the championship battle. But it wasn't a thrilling race by any means. But if you have Leclerc on pole and Verstappen is trying to find ways to overtake, 
in Mercedes, if they had their woes and it becomes a Ferrari Red Bull battle, it could have been really interesting. But instead, it was a dominating performance by Max Verstappen, whose really only competition in that race was going to be from Valtteri Bottas. And once he had that wheel nut problem, that was it. I give Leclerc a lot of credit for sticking around. I know it was massively disappointing for him, but he did support the team. He got a lot of praise for that. I mean, I would have just gone to my apartment and sulked, but that's just me. All right, our second bit of news with the series heading to Baku for round six and the fact that Red Bull is now on top of both the drivers and the constructors standings. Mercedes top dog Total Wolf has warned that they could protest Red Bull's bendy wings at Baku. The FIA will start testing on June 15th on those wings to see how flexible they really are. But since that comes after Baku, Red Bull is expected to use their wing on that circuit. Now, Wolf's told Sky Sports F1 that he could take this protest to the ICA, the International Court of Appeals, if the stewards do not do enough. Now, this is Wolf's push to get the FIA to clarify this before Baku, or in his words, this could get messy. They don't need it to get messy. Now, he's not going to contest the win at Monaco. He does see that Red Bull won this fair and square. He really did emphasize that, you know, that this was a fair and square win by Red Bull. But there is a serious advantage that Red Bull is having with those bendy wings going forward, and he wants to take some action. Christian Horner responds to that, suggesting that, look, you can't just magic this overnight, a change, and suggested that this could cost Red Bull up to a half a million dollars. That seems a little bit steep, whatever. I, you know, Red Bull gives you wings, I guess. But Red Bull isn't the only one dealing with the bendy wings. Ferrari, Alpine, Alfa Romeo, they're also all in this group. Now, look, the rule states that all components influencing the aerodynamics must be rigidly secured and immobile. Baku, long straight. That's going to give Red Bull an advantage. Mercedes is calculating that it could be worth six-tenths of a second on that straight alone. The bottom line here is very simple. The FIA wants to start testing these wings before the French Grand Prix in the middle of June. Mercedes wants the FIA to enforce their own rule before Baku as an advantage can be gained there, especially now that the race for the world championship has tightened up. Red Bull and the other teams feel that's not enough turnaround time to change what has been allowed until Mercedes started bringing this to light at Barcelona, more specifically Lewis Hamilton bringing this up at Barcelona. Formula One does not want this to end up in the ICA. Absolutely. Toto is right. This is going to be way too messy. So they really do have to figure this out. And I don't blame Mercedes for this, but I also understand where Red Bull is coming from, right? Red Bull is saying, look, we believe these are within the guidelines and it's just not going to happen overnight that we change them. And I know there's been a lot of criticism on that remark saying, well, the amount of time it took you to make the blunt bendy wing is the same amount of time you could probably get one that's going to be stiffened up on your car. So, but again, back to the original point of this of Formula One, you don't want to mess around with the courts. I, I don't think it's good. It's a good look. I don't think fighting it on that level. I think the FIA just has to figure this out and is to go to every team and go, look, this is what we're going to do. And this is how it's going to be. And that's it. And that end of story. But I don't know. I mean, Total Wolf is really making sure that this point has been emphasized not only to the FIA, but to the media at large. And that means the public. So he's not only getting his voice of contention out to the governing body of the sport, he's getting his voice of contention out to the public. 
All right, Lewis Hamilton said right before the Monaco Grand Prix that Formula One is becoming a billionaire boys club. He said there would be no way someone like him, who had a father who worked four jobs to fund his karting career before Mercedes signed him at 13 to get into the sport today. Now, there are three drivers on the grid that are sons of billionaires, Lance Stroll, Nikita Mazepin, and Nicholas Latifi, Max Verstappen, Mick Schumacher, their sons of former drivers. That's five of the 20 drivers on the grid who had serious financial backing towards their career goals. Now, Hamilton is right, of course, but everyone in Formula One knows this. The problem is that unlike other sports where teams are well-funded and don't need to fill roster spots with wealthy athletes, Formula One is different. Some of these teams like Williams and Haas, they need the funding that comes with having a seat filled with drivers who are rich. Look at sports like in the NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA. They don't need to sign wealthy athletes. They're properly funded. The teams are properly funded enough by the collective revenue that all the teams share in their broadcasting rights, etc. Yeah, there's always conversations about should you get a guy to sell tickets and jerseys, but they're not being asked to sign rich, wealthy quarterbacks who will then provide funding to the team. But Formula One has to do that. Look, Mercedes spent over $400 million in 2019. That's hard to compete against. And the numbers of wins in the polls are proof they've won seven straight constructors' championships. It's crazy, but it's not competitive. Look at NASCAR. So far this season, they've had 11 different drivers win. Formula One may have only two or three drivers for the entire 23-race season. The constructors' standing should not just directly reflect or correlate with spending. Look at the 2012 Formula One season, for example. The first seven races were won by seven different drivers. There were five teams that year that earned podiums in those first seven races. First seven. Now that's competitive. We know that Mazepin is in his hot seat because of his father. His father might end up buying the team. But wouldn't Callum Eilat be a better choice as far as talent goes? But a talented driver is not what Haas wants. They don't need that. They need money. And Nikita Mazepin and his father bring money and a sponsor. And that's hard for a lot of new Formula One fans to wrap their head around. Because especially if you root for sports where the cream rises to the top and the best of the best of the best are selected. Now, look, the new cost cap is going to help tremendously, right? If you're going to grow the sport in the United States, you sort of need this. Americans don't like sports where big money wins all the time. See Major League Baseball. $140 million in 2022, $135 million in 2023. But going back to Lewis Hamilton's original point, which is it's a billionaire boys club. It's a very expensive sport. If you have a youngster that's going up in, in karting and as you, know, you start noticing a little talent, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And a lot of families just don't have the resources to continue a karting career. And that's where racing in general and the, it can really help help out a lot to really find talent at different levels in different socioeconomic backgrounds and sort of find the best of the best of the best. And I do think that if you sort of are in a position where all of the teams are somewhat financially competitive, meaning all the teams can afford the cap money and they don't necessarily need to sort of bow down to a pay driver, that that's going to help a lot. And it does need to be more competitive. There's no question about it. I mean, we cannot have years where Mercedes is going to win all the time unless Lewis Hamilton makes a mistake. I mean, look at 2020. Pierre Gasly wins at Monza because Lewis Hamilton goes into a pit lane that's closed, right? Mercedes at the Secure Grand Prix have a tire screw up and they double stacked with George Russell and Valtteri Bottas. Russell has a puncture and then Sergio Perez wins the race. Those are few and far between in a dominant year by Lewis Hamilton. 
after a while, the interest starts to wane when you're not producing a competitive product, especially, if, again, if you're trying to attract new fans on a daily basis. But I think Hamilton's comments bring up two issues. One is what we were just talking about, which is the competitiveness of the sport. If you can keep costs under some reasonable cap, then it brings back the competitiveness of the sport. But that's not really where he's going as well. I mean, he didn't want to diss any of the drivers in terms of talent. He was not looking at the young talent and saying, yeah, they all just got here because their fathers are rich. And that's not what he was talking about. His, his overall point is, how does racing in general, how do we look at young people who from all sorts of different economic backgrounds and really find the talented ones and really find a way to fund their careers as they're, as they're rising the ranks? Because if it's just going to be a sport where wealthy parents are going to be able to buy all the best karting equipment for their young kid, trying to get them into a Formula One seat eventually someday using all of their power and resources, then there's a problem. And he's trying to point out that problem. All right, we'll finish with the preview of the Indianapolis 500 coming up on Sunday at the Brickyard. Scott Dixon starting from pole position. Two of the sport's young drivers are going to be right beside him on the front row. Colton Herta, who won at St. Petersburg. Dutchman Renus VK is also going to be alongside in row one. He just recently won the Indianapolis Grand Prix. This used to be, this race used to be a huge deal when I was a kid growing up. I, I felt like in the 90s when CART and IRL split and we sort of lost a little bit of its luster but you know this used to be a race that was on network television you knew the drivers there was familiarity it just became one of those memorial day traditions that were that were huge the winner would get on the cover of sports illustrated i mean it was a big big event and the stars of the indianapolis 500 became household names and i feel like that has gone away over the years over the almost close to 30 years since we had the split between the two entities where IRL in the mid nineties decided to run a schedule on just ovals with the Indianapolis 500 as, as its cornerstone event. And then cart who still wanted to run road courses had to find its own thing. It was like the U S Grand Prix at Michigan. That was like their counter event to the Indianapolis 500 that Roger Penske was putting together. But it is still one of the crown jewels of motorsports. You did see drivers eventually just go, now nah, I'm running in the Indy 500. This is what I got in this business to do. Now, Herta, he's a rising star in American driving. And Mario Andretti suggested that he would be great in a seat in Formula One as an arising American driver in a sport that's growing in the U.S. If, you know, if you'd like to hear my thoughts on that and a little bit more details, you can check out episode five of the Overtake F1 podcast. We actually discussed this issue. It is part of our Portuguese Grand Prix preview. So uh, check that out. It's episode five. Now, Roman Grosjean is not running in the Indy 500. In fact, he will not run at Texas either. He is not going to run on any super speedway. Now, a lot of it has to do, I think most of it has to do with his accident in Bahrain, has him rethinking about those kind of races, and he has decided not to participate. I'll be honest with you. I, I, I was really surprised by this when he made that announcement back in the winter that he didn't want to do it. And I understand. Look, I, I think a lot of us who watched that live, that Bahrain race live and saw that explosion, we thought we watched a driver die right, right in front of us. And when he emerged from that fire and everything that came after that, sort of the conversation that he's had in interviews where he talked about sitting in that car, sort of accepting his fate, and then in a split second realizing he had to get out of there because of his kids and his wife and wiggled his way out and got out of the car and jumped free. And all in that nearly three-minute time span where his wife and kids did not know what was going, what was happening to him, if he was alive or if they had lost their husband and father, that that has to weigh on you heavily. 
There is no question that the Indianapolis 500 is still a very dangerous race. I mean, you got cars going over 200 miles an hour and drivers making adjustments coming into turn four, coming into turn two, right off the short shoots. You're making adjustments to the car. There's going to be some understeer. They're, they're trying to do that and ward off the challenges from either side of the vehicle as they're trying to squeeze their way through the field. I, I can understand a, a guy who's been in Formula One as long as Roman Grosjean who looks at that race and goes, look, I just I just escaped a fireball. I'm not going to be part of that. I'm not interested in that, even if it is a crown jewel event. I had a chance to talk to Nathan Brown of USA Today about the Indy 500 coming up on my morning show on Sports Map Radio, and I asked him point black. I said, look, the back of the field, guys like Joseph Newgarden, Simon Pagano, Will Power, can they win the race going up front without attrition, without sort of the normal things that would allow somebody in the back of the field to get up front? Can you just do it on racing alone? He said he doubts it. He, he thinks that the winner of this race is going to come from either the around the top 10, top 12 that are on the grid. Now, again, barring any unforeseen circumstances like that, you know, a major accident up front that sort of allows cars to really dramatically change position. But it's not going to be as easy as you see it in other races where a car can go from the back of the field and back of the, you know, to the front just on some racing, just picking off cars one by one. He thinks it would be very, very difficult to do so. I think if Colton Herta wins the Indianapolis 500, you're going to hear a lot more conversation about his potential in formula one i don't know where it's coming going to come from i seriously don't have any idea how he would get into formula one but if he does win the indianapolis 500 and you got mario andretti telling anybody that will listen that that kid should be in a formula one seat to help boost the sports potential in america you're going to see more and more people talk about it again i have no idea how it would happen i mean Maybe he would get a seat in, I don't know, in Williams, I guess. I don't know. But again, I, I, you're going to see a lot more of that conversation. All right, coming up next week, we've got our preview of the Azerbaijan Grand Prix on the streets of Baku. It is round six of the World Championship. Again, subscribe to the podcast. We would love your feedback. You can reach me on Twitter at Tony D Radio. You can also email the show at the Overtake F1 Podcast at gmail.com. That's the Overtake F1 podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to get some listener feedback as well. All right, we'll see you next week. If you're watching the Indianapolis 500, enjoy the race. If you're watching the Coca-Cola 600 for NASCAR, enjoy that race as well. We'll see you next week. I'm Tony Desiri, and this is the Overtake F1 podcast.